Good morning. Good to see you this morning. You know, legendary basketball player Michael Jordan once visited the home of a, a friend by the name of Fred Whitfield. And they were about to go to dinner, and Jordan asked his friend, he said, it's kind of cold outside, do you have a coat? And his friend directed him to his closet down the hallway. And so Jordan walked down the hall and disappeared for several minutes. He came back with a pile of clothes, and he dumped them in the floor of the living room. He walked down the hall and disappeared again for several minutes, came back with the rest of the clothes in Whitfield's closet, came and dropped them on the current pile <coughs> Excuse me, in the living room. He told him, he said, all of this gear is Puma. And Puma was an arch rival of Nike who sponsored Michael Jordan. Jordan went to the kitchen and got a knife and came back and cut up all the Puma gear and then picked it up, took it outside, and dropped it in the dumpster. He came back in and told his friend Fred, he said, hey, call my Nike rep tomorrow, and he'll replace all of this, but don't let me ever, ever catch you again with anything in your closet other than Nike. Michael Jordan wanted full allegiance, and he couldn't have that. He couldn't have that total commitment from his friend until he destroyed the competition. Look at Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 19, here's what we read. And it came about as soon as Moses approached the camp, that he saw the calf and the people dancing, and Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. This is the day that Moses broke all ten commandments, right? Then he took the calf, which they had made, and completely burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water, and made the sons of Israel drink it. So, God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, just as he is telling Moses that he is the one true God, and that the people are to have no other gods before him. The people down below are creating a God for themselves, right? So, Aaron is left in charge. And the people want a God that is more visible, more tangible, and one that doesn't take so long. And so they gather up everybody's gold, they throw it in the fire, and they fashion this golden calf. Have you ever thought about how ironic this whole episode is? That just as Moses is receiving the commands from God, which start with to have no other gods before him, down below, the people are fashioning a God for them, right? Then if you read further in the Bible, you get to Psalm 106, and this is what you read. It says, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a cast metal image. So they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. So the Israelites traded their creator for a God of their own creation. And unfortunately, we do that all the time, don't we? Maybe you don't, but... I've been guilty of this. Maybe it's a house that we pour all of our money into. Maybe it's a job or a career that gets us that, that corner office. Maybe, maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a baby. Maybe it's uh, our children who are super high achievers. Maybe it's a, a, a ripped and fit body. Maybe it's a political agenda or ideology. Idolatry is simply this. Anything that becomes a substitute for God. So whatever your purpose, whatever the driving force is in your life, it's very likely that that is an idol 
for you. Now, we need to dispose of this idea of golden calves or statues or figurines and strip away the idea of idolatry being just a a top ten list of thou shalt nots. Picture in your mind a massive oak tree. The tree's trunk is so big that you can't even wrap your arms around it. And this tree stands beside a riverbank. Its roots are exposed. And those roots are huge. You can see how deep and, and, and far they run. Then also think about the branches coming off this massive oak. There's branches everywhere, branches upon branches. And, and hanging from these branches are certain things. On one branch, you find money. On another branch, you find gold bars. On another branch, you find keys to a luxury car. On another branch, there's, there's hanging a, a mirror reflecting the perfect image of you. It's an idolatry tree. And all the branches are really just symptoms that come out from a massive trunk or the core with roots that run really deep. So if you're going to address the issue of idolatry, you can't address the symptoms. You have to go to the core, the root, and fix it there. This morning we begin a series looking at our core. We're looking at what makes us special, what makes us stand out, what makes us the church as individuals who make up the church. We're looking at our DNA and we're asking and answering the question, what makes us us as the church, as individuals who make up the body of Jesus Christ? Who are we and what are we about? And I've narrowed it down to four things. There's probably more, but I've narrowed it down to four things specifically. And the first one this morning that we're looking at is God first, then Bible-based, better together or fellowship, and then finally keeping it real or our authenticity, right? So over the next four weeks, we'll be looking at each of these aspects individually in an effort to understand our core better. I think we understand that. I think we know what we're supposed to be about, but probably doesn't hurt to have a friendly reminder every now and then. You know, it's interesting, when I was putting together this series, one evening my wife and I were sitting on the couch, and as I often do, I asked her opinion. I said, you know, because of her field, she knows a little something about DNA, and so I said, what would be a good thread or a good illustration that I could use for this series? And she sat there for a minute, She finally asked, why did you pick four weeks? I said, well, to be honest with you, I needed to fill four weeks. I had a series before it and a series after it, and I needed to fill four weeks. Because when I look at my calendar, I look at when is Easter, when is, you know, certain holidays, when does school start back. I want to make sure that I'm not in the middle of a sermon series at that time, if I can help it, or that I prepare something proper for the occasion. And I said, really, I had four weeks that I needed something. And she said, well, it's interesting. Because DNA has four chemical foundations. You have adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. I have no idea what to do with that. I'm just telling you that that's what she told me. But I do find it interesting that I had four weeks and that the four aspects that I came up with form the foundation of our DNA. And she is saying that actual DNA has four fundamental properties So, when we talk about who we are, both as the church and as as individuals, 
we have to talk first about putting God in his place. That is one of the most fundamental aspects of what it means to be the church, to be Jesus' followers. And of course, putting God in his place doesn't mean that he is seated on the sofa or the love seat next to our heart. It means that he occupies the throne of our hearts. Now, there's something that we need to establish, something that we need to get straight from the very beginning, and it's this. We don't put God first. I'm sorry that messed that up. Sometimes it does that. I, I didn't do that. I, you know, I was an English major for a while, and then I, I changed majors. Um, we don't make God first. He's already first. He's already the supreme ruler the one who reigns over the universe, right? He is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is creator of all and his glory is the reason for all. He is the sovereign king and ruler over everything and everyone. Whatever he ordains will be done. He will be glorified to everyone, by everyone, either in salvation or condemnation. There will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So this is not about establishing who is king and ruler of all that's already been determined what you've got to decide is who you're going to bow to will you bow to this God will you seat him on the throne of your heart this is about who or what has your heart and in case you haven't noticed we're talking about DNA and whatever the DNA is of the church should be the DNA that is at your core as well because we obviously are supposed to be functioning body parts of this entire body, right? So, whatever the church is, we are to be as well. Our DNA, who we are at our core, who we are in our heart, says everything about us, right? The heart of our heart is Jesus. He is the heart that, that, that pumps life through us. He is our lifeline. He keeps us alive. He pumps through us as our heartbeat. At least he should be. But we know that, don't we? I, I doubt any of you disagree with anything I just said. We know this. We know that he is supposed to be first place in our lives. We know that he should receive top billing. We, you've heard me say it over and over again. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And you say, yes, Chris, amen. Preach it. But then we go home from here and we wake up Monday and we have all these different idols competing for our attention, right? It's so difficult not to bow down to them. We understand and yet we find a hard time doing. We know, but we have a hard time putting that knowledge into action. We know that our heart is a battleground and that's why these various gods fight so diligently for every square inch of it. And that's also why we must address the real issue. When it comes to idolatry and priorities, the heart of the issue is an issue of the heart. Who or what has it? That's the question. It's like if you were walking uh, along a, a beautiful stream and you stop and you notice trash in the middle of it. There's beer cans, there's all sorts of debris, there's a green film on the top of the water, and you decide you're going to be a good citizen and go clean it up. And so you wait out there and you pick up all the trash out of the water and you dispose of it. And the next day you visit that same place and there's more trash. It's like it multiplied overnight. Knowing that it's very unlikely that someone came to that very spot and dumped more trash, you decide to walk upstream a little ways, and sure enough, you find a garbage dump, and they're just throwing trash out into the stream. 
and that trash is traveling down to that spot where you were at. In order to address the trash, what do you have to do? You have to address the real problem. You have to take an upstream approach, not a downstream approach. You can clear all the trash downstream, but if you don't go to the source and address the real problem, you're going to keep trying to remove the trash. So this is not about trash removal. This is about addressing the real issue. All too often, we address the trash and not the source. We spend all of our energy on removing the trash and not addressing the real problem. We deal with a a downstream approach when we should be dealing with an upstream approach. Let me give you an example. You have trouble with gambling. You're addicted to gambling, so you avoid the casino. Your, your, Your marriage is in trouble, so you buy your wife flowers. You have an anger problem, so you take a deep breath and count to 10. You're you're drowning in debt, so you cut up your credit cards. You're struggling with your weight, so you get on a diet and, and join a gym. Not to say that some of these things aren't necessary. They're a part of addressing the issue. But you haven't addressed the real problem. You've only addressed the symptoms, right? That's behavior modification. And certainly behavior modification will need to be a part of the process, But it doesn't matter unless you address the real issue. Let's say you have a problem with worry. I think that's one that probably covers most of us, if not all of us. Let's say you struggle with worry. It's consuming you to the point that God is getting pushed to the back burner. And you hear, you know, the words of Jesus or the words of Paul being preached by somebody like me that says, do not worry. You say, well, I am worried. Well, stop. Well, that's not always easy, is it? You know... You hear somebody say, well, you just need to pray about it. Let go and let God, right? But that doesn't work. Pithy little church sayings don't help. You've got to address the real issue, right? Oftentimes, we respond by saying, pray harder, study harder, try harder. But oftentimes, our approach is just behavior modification. It's about addressing the symptom and not the real issue. And when it comes to like, uh, something like worry, a lot of times we address the emotion and not what it's tied to. Worry is about devotion, not emotion. If you want to address the problem of worry and why it's consuming you, why anxiety is overriding your faith, then you've got to go to the source. You see, your overloves are the problem. And until you address your overloves, you're not going to address your overworry. It's still going to consume you. Once you reveal what your overloves are, you have an opportunity to understate them. In order to address the things that we're most devoted to, we need to address the treasures that we have stored up in our hearts. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your heart? What is your heart devoted to? You see, we don't solve the problem of worry by simply trying harder or having stronger willpower. That's like trying to cure insomnia by trying to go to sleep. It just doesn't work, right? Worry is the symptom of an underlying issue. It's it's causing an arrhythmia. Our heart is out of whack. And so if you want to get your heart beating in rhythm again, you have to address why it's out of rhythm in the first place. You go to the source. That's an upstream approach. 
Now, Jesus does this. He takes an upstream approach. Listen to what he says concerning worry. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? So here's the problem, or excuse me, here's the solution that Jesus gives to the problem of worry. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus is bringing his audience back around to right priorities. He's zeroing in on our ambitions and he's calling us to keep first things first and second things second. You may still feel uncertainty about the things of this life, but your worry and your anxiety won't consume you or overwhelm you when you're devoted to God, to the kingdom, and to kingdom things first and foremost. You may have concern, but you still have hope. And it's not that you're being careless. It's it's that you have faith, and that faith overrides everything else. Jesus even asked the question, is not life more than? Do you notice that? Is not life more than? Well, sure it is. Sure life is more than food, clothing, or whatever else that you're worried about. Is not life more than? It is. And because life is more than, your concerns can be deemed as less than. I read a story about a man who was a missionary in Africa. He had devoted his life to preaching in this small remote village in Africa. And when he died, his family took his body to London and buried it there because that's where he was from. But they kept his heart in Africa in that remote village. They buried his heart there because that's where his heart was. Where's your heart? What is it devoted to? Who or what has your heart? Many times, Our heart is consumed with good things. They're not bad things. They're not evil things. They're just not best things, right? So what are you most devoted to? Because your heart follows your treasure. When Jesus talks about worry in Matthew chapter 6, we often just take worry from that passage and we just land there and we say, see, Jesus addresses worry, but he's really addressing life, isn't he? Is not life more than? This is is life stuff that he's talking about here. And worry is a part of life. Anxiety is a part of life. But there's more to it than that. It's a life question. It's a God question. It's an idolatry question. Where is your heart? Because your heart follows your treasure. I want to point out something else from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6. I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't dismiss the reasons for these people's uh, worry. He's not condescending. He's not angry. I think sometimes that's the way the church has read these words is we, we think that, that Jesus is being rather condescending or angry or frustrated. Maybe sometimes he was. If any of you watched the Chosen series, been watching that? So if you watch the Chosen, it, it sheds a different light on, on discourse like this. It's Jesus talking to people lovingly and compassionately from a point of understanding to say, I know, but think about it this way. And I think that's what he's doing here. I don't read anger in his words here. But look at verse 25 again. He says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. For this reason. What reason? What reason is he talking about? 
Well, the fact that you cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot serve two things at once. God doesn't compete with anybody. Now understand, mammon here isn't just wealth. It's the things money can buy. Stuff, right? Possessions, all those kind of things. When God is in control, you serve Him. And you don't have to worry about the things that moth or rust destroy or that thieves break in and steal because you're going to be provided for. For this reason, Jesus says. This reason is why you don't have to worry because I'm in control. God's going to take care of you, right? We, we tend to rank things. All of us have a priority list. One of my favorite coaches of all time, Tom Landry, said, God, family, football. That was his ranking list. We all have a rankings list. And who's at the top of it? God, right? Doesn't mean you keep him there, but that's who's there. My guess is all of us struggle to keep him there, but we know where he should be. Like I said, none of you have any issue with anything I've probably said up to this point. God first, everything else second. But the struggle is to keep him first, right? It's not a one-time decision. It's a decision that we make every day, many moments of the day, right? We're often consumed with pursuing things that are not best. And it's easy for us to get out of whack, and it's easy to find that God is now number two or three, that he's moved from that ranking that top billing, and we've allowed something else to take his place. And again, it's not that we're being overtly godless. It's not that we're evil or wicked. It just happens, and, and subconsciously we begin pursuing something else, and we wake up one day and say, oh, I've got to get things back in order, right? Several years ago, I had the privilege of speaking to a wonderful group of elders at a retreat. And during this retreat, we broke up into small groups, and the group that I was with, we were discussing what are some of the, the more frustrating or difficult things about being a leader in the Lord's church. And one sweet dear man I love greatly, one of the elders, he, he said, I feel like at the church where I serve, there's so much going on. There's so many plates spinning that we don't even realize why we do what we do. He said, I, I can't even keep up with all the programs and activities that we, go, that we have going on. He said, it's almost like we're programmed to death that we feel like in order to be a faithful church, that we've got to be busy doing something all the time. And he said, that's fine until you forget why you're doing it. In other words, what's the core behind all of it? What's driving it? What's motivating it? Can you be so busy doing godly things that you forget the reason why you do it? That you have so many godly activities going on that you're not even God-oriented any longer. Look with me at Luke chapter 10. I know we've looked at Mary and Martha before in the past. But I want to bring out a couple of things from this passage that maybe we haven't looked at before. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38, it says, Now as they were traveling along, he, Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, I, I think that many Christians are more like Martha than they are Mary. They are distracted by preparations. They're busy with programs or activities or things in their life. They get immersed into the work of the church, perhaps. But like Martha, they become distracted from what matters most. 
I fully understand Martha's mentality. And I think we all should. If Jesus and his apostles were coming to your home, you would be feeling a little bit of angst to make sure that everything was proper and in order to make sure, of course, that the meal was the best thing he had ever eaten because this was going to be one of his last meals, wasn't it? But then notice, notice that Martha gets upset. She gets frustrated because in all of her planning and all of her preparations, Mary's sitting down. And she, she asked Jesus to come to her rescue. She even says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. In other words, if, if you tell her, she's going to do it. So just tell her to come and help me so that she'll get up and actually do something. Martha's frustrated with her sister, but she's also frustrated, it seems, a little bit with Jesus because he hasn't stepped in and come to her aid. Lord, do you not care? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. What's about to happen? Yeah, he's going to die. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out on a limb here and, think, and, and, and say this. I, I doubt that Jesus cared too much about a meal at that point. My guess is his thoughts were so consumed with the cross that was looming in the foreground that the last thing on his mind was meal preparation. But listen how he gently responds to Martha. He says, Martha, Martha. You are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. We don't always choose the good part, and we get frustrated by people who do. We get so fixated on an earthly meal that we forget what's so important. We tend to see the task that we're engaged in at the moment as being the most important, and we get annoyed with other people who don't think like we do. We feel as though everyone should drop everything that they're doing and pitch in and help us. But Martha's problem wasn't Mary's problem. That's what she needed to understand. At that moment, the meal wasn't the most important thing. It may have been to Martha, but it wasn't to anyone else. The NIV states that Mary has chosen what is better. It's not that what Martha was doing wasn't essential. It's not that what she was doing wasn't important. It just wasn't most important. Jesus even says to her, but only one thing is necessary. Only one thing is necessary. There are a lot of things that are important, a lot of things that are even necessary. Making preparations for a meal for Jesus and his apostles was important. It just wasn't the most important thing. What was? The fact that Martha was in the presence of Jesus. Jesus was there in her home, and she was missing it. She had the opportunity to sit with Jesus. Mary took full advantage of that, and Martha was too busy to even notice who was in her home. It's not that she was doing things that were unimportant. Fixing a meal, that's important. It's essential even to eat. It's just not the best thing, which is why we have to fight to put God in his proper place. We have to also recognize that God is not a priority not a category he's he's if you have a list of rankings it starts with God and then who cares what you put next it doesn't matter who cares what's next if God's first everything else is going to be in order right you love others best when you love God the most so yes God is top priority but he's not a category. That's what we do. We tend to categorize. We tend to compartmentalize life. You have school, you have work, you have recreation, then you have church. But when God is placed on the throne of your heart, 
It encompasses everything. It saturates everything that you are, everything that you do. God is not a file or a compartment. God cannot be compartmentalized because God revolutionizes. He revolutionizes our life when we choose to place him on the throne of our hearts. And therefore, all other categories fall under his heading. When God is first, it doesn't really matter what comes second because everything else finds its meaning in him. You know what Martha did? She blocked the biggest blessing in her life. Don't do that. Don't block the biggest blessing in your life by being so busy that you can't even see that Jesus is right in front of you and that he's calling you to a relationship. Don't allow that relationship to be harmed in any way by something that's not eternal. There's a lot of good things that you engage in. But make sure that first and foremost, what is best is what you're devoted to. Several years ago on 60 Minutes, Steve Croft conducted an interview with future Hall of Fame quarterback Tom Brady. Tom Brady said these words in the interview, and I quote, a direct quote from him, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is, this is what it's all about. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. And I hear the, the words of Jesus echoing, is not life more than? Croft then asked Tom Brady what the answer might possibly be. What's his answer to all this? And Brady replied, again, direct quote, what's the answer? I wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. What an honest answer, and what a wise answer. Here's a guy who seemingly has it all, fame, fortune, accolades, ability, and yet he still asks the question, basically, what have all those gods done for me? And he's only left to answer, nothing really. When it comes down to it, nothing really, not enough anyway. Allow me to leave you with these words. There is no one like you among the gods, Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made will come and worship before you, Lord, and they will glorify your name. For you are great and you do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. And the church said, and the church went out and lived it. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we cannot thank you enough for who you are, for who you are making us out to be. God, may we always seek to bear your image in the world around us. May we show others what it looks like to have a God-first approach to life. We love you. We thank you. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Can we help you this morning? Do you need prayer? need the love and support of this church family. Maybe you're ready to take the next step in faith. Maybe you're ready to uh, put on Christ in baptism. Maybe you're ready to study the Bible with someone. Wherever you're at this morning, whatever your need is, we want you to know that this is a family that loves you, that cares for you, and that will help you in any way that we can. David's going to lead us in a song. If you have a need, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.